Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. And I wanted to start this segment by saying I have a big soft spot for Boeing. To get my bias out front, I'm a Boeing baby. My dad was an engineer for the company for roughly 40 years, his entire career. The last plane he had a major role on was the 777, and he retired from the company years before the Max 8 and Max 9 series. But a ton of our listeners are like me. They're in the same boat. They have a connection to this company. While our region's economy is no longer solely dependent on aerospace design and manufacturing, Boeing's struggles feel a little more personal to many of us in the Seattle area. And those struggles have been huge. From the design problems that caused catastrophic, deadly crashes of two 737 MAX 8s in 2018 and 2019, to the manufacturing and quality control missteps that led to a door plug bursting off of a MAX 9 last month. The company has reached the most existential crisis point in its history. CEO Dave Calhoun said in an earnings call yesterday that, quote, Boeing is accountable for what happened. He added in an interview with CNBC that the company's full attention is on making sure Boeing never has a safety escape again. Learn everything we can from the accident. Learn everything we can from the FAA's audit. Learn everything we can from the stand down that we had and all the ideas that were given to us by our own people. And that requires all of our attention, all of our energy. So what does the company need to do to turn things around? And how should Boeing begin to rebuild its reputation for quality and safety after this series of high-profile failures? We'll dig into those questions with our panel today. Richard Abalafia is the managing director of Aerodynamic Advisory, an aerospace consulting firm, Ed Pearson is the executive director of the Foundation for Aviation Safety and a former senior manager at Boeing. And Dr. Ashley Fulmer is an assistant professor of managerial sciences at Georgia State University. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here for this conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great to you. So, Richard, I wanted to get you first, and then we'll turn to Ashley and Ed. What do you make of Dave Calhoun's remarks yesterday and how Boeing has responded to the crisis so far? <laughs> Well, I mean, he's good at answering questions, right? Like, I mean, you know, his predecessor, uh, Dennis Muhlenberg, was kind of famous for just kind of not properly emoting and saying what needed to be said. Uh, Dave Calhoun is quite good at it. He's quite good at apologizing. He's quite good at saying, "Okay, our fault, our bad. But it doesn't actually result in any changes at the company. The complaints we still hear from within the company and from suppliers and any other number of stakeholders are still exactly the same. You have senior management that's extremely removed from the core business of actually creating and building aircraft. So I, I think what he says on calls is is pretty close to what needs to be said. It's a question of actions that aren't being taken. That's the real problem here. Ashley, your response. Yes, I agree with Richard that um, Dave Calhoun's response are really on target, right? He takes accountability, and that's the most important thing. However, at this rate, I mean, at, at where we are right now, we're seeing this ongoing crisis for, you know, unfolding many years right now. So what we are seeing is, or questions that all of us will have, well, is it just some sort of lip service? What do we see is actually the tangible 
uh, assurance or commitment to safety, and that's what we are all concerned here. And then from the perspective of you know trust, uh, trust building, trust rebuilding, and restoring, is that we don't see a consistent record um, from Boeing right now. We don't see that consistent demonstration of safety and of reliability, and that's what we uh, Boeing really needs to work on right now. Ed Pearson, response to the top line response from Calhoun and how the company has been reacting so far. Well, um, I just want to tell you, my wife is also a Boeing baby. So we have um, a lot of interest in just like you and we we know what the company is capable of doing. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of, of people who are tied up in this way and feel, you know, strongly about the future of the company and what's been going wrong. So, yeah, thanks for for sharing that. Yeah. And, and I think it's kind of a core principle because, um, you know, when you talk, you know, I used to coach high school football and we would tell our players that talk is cheap. You know, it's it's your actions, just like Richard was saying and uh, Ashley were saying the the um, you know, you could say all these nice words, but and this is also reactive um, communication. Right. Um, it's it, it needs to be on. The, it needs to be proactive and, and taking accountability, um, you know, Unfortunately, the accountability is shifting to the flight crew and the passengers, and the company's really not taking accountability. We've seen this in a lot of data we're looking at, a lot of reporting, uh, things that are happening, public is unaware of. And so we've been you know, trying to ring this bell for a while now, and we thought that this Alaska accident, you know, obviously traumatic to the families and the crew, um, we really were very hopeful that this was going to be the wake up call that they were going to say, wait a minute, we really need to really examine what's happening. And these manufacturing issues that have been occurring, a quality escapes, unfortunately, on the 737 MAX, nothing new. I mean, just in the last two years, we've seen over 20 serious production quality defects on that airplane. And the public, you know, really doesn't track it that closely. But what happens is you get a, a, a major defect that comes to light. For example, the rudder bolts that are, you know, the, the hardware or the or the vertical fin with cracks in it or the aft pressure dome with mistrial holes, you have these issues that are happening. And what happens is you get the same, same old, same old response. You know, we're, you know, we're gonna renew our our um engineering and our quality and we're gonna, you know, safety's priority. And there's a lot of broken promises. And then that's what happens. It just goes into a cycle and then it goes out of the news cycle and people forget about it. And then it comes right back up. So this is a real pattern that we're seeing. We're trying to break. Richard, the National Transportation Safety Board investigation is ongoing. But can you give us a rundown so folks can kind of have the table set here? What do we know so far about how that door plug left the Boeing plant in Renton without being properly attached to the fuselage? Yeah, uh, there's a lot that's not known. It's just that, you know, two things about the incident that I guess we should be more or less grateful for is that, first of all, it's clearly not a design thing. It's an installation thing. Um, You know, it's not like we have another repeat of the 737 MAX MCAS problem from a couple of years ago, which was very much a design thing. And that was far more serious as a consequence. The other thing is that it's not a repeat of the aft fuselage pressure bulkhead issue that we saw in June last June when um, it transpired that a couple of, uh, you know, hinges weren't properly installed or were not of the right level of manufacturing quality. That takes surgery. This is an aperture relatively easy to inspect. Still, it is, in to use that horribly Orwellian term, a quality escape, a safety escape. Uh, 
I really am not a fan of that term, but it's what's being used. And how did this happen, right? And of course, the Seattle Times reported that it was reinstalled improperly. Um, at uh, it, of course, the entire body of the plane came from Spirit Aero Systems. Uh, the 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 plug was removed, put back, and wasn't done properly. The most likely answer, you know, again, we don't have the right answer, but I'll, this is a virtual certainty that you've got a production ramp that's badly under-resourced, processes that are not adequately, you know, provided with oversight and whatever else. Basically, it's a recipe for, well, again, quality escapes. Um, something has gone wrong uh, with this because you're seeing kind of a systemic pattern, you know, between this and, and the thing last June and whatever other things that, uh, that might arise. Um, there's clearly a pattern of, well, things going through the production system that are not being caught. Yeah. Richard talks about the um, door being removed at the Renton facility, then put back. Um, the reporting from Dominic Gates at the Times talking to a whistleblower who claims to have uh, knowledge and, and documentation from inside the facility was that these four bolts that were supposed to prevent the door from sliding off um, out of alignment with the pressure pads were not installed properly, and that was delivered to, to Alaska. So the buck stops with Boeing, basically, and Dave Calhoun has, has said that. Um, Ed, what kinds of chain of custody and quality control things seem to have gone amiss if the door could go out the facility um, without its proper uh, bolts and, and, and with the potential to blow off the way it did over Portland? Well, well first, if, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to, um, uh, to Richard's comments because I, I want to be respectful here because I really 100% disagree that this is not consistent with what happened in the two crashes. Um, You're talking about all- the comments about design versus manufacturing issues. Richard's trying to draw a distinction between those. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people, and, and maybe I misunderstood Richard, but a lot of people are saying that, you know, the planes that took the two planes that crashed was because of the MCAS software and the lack of pilot training and the rush design. All true. Uh, never, I've never said that that wasn't the case, and never. My opinion has always been that those also played major factors. But those two airplanes, uh, Lion Air six ten and Ethiopian Airlines Flight three hundred two, had manufacturing defects in them. Um, can I read something to you? Because uh, people just seem to not have seen this. Or uh, this is a final accident investigation report that came from Ethiopian government. It was. It came out in December twenty twenty two, just right during the uh, Christmas break. And if, let me just read this something yeah, because I, I, I want to make sure people what I'm what I'm trying to very clearly say is that the manufacturing played a role in the crashes, and and it's consistently we consistently have been seeing problems with airplanes ever since. Let me read this to you. This is a, just a one quote out of the um, out of that final report. A miscalibrated sensor scenario for JT six ten and a bird strike scenario for ET three hundred two cannot explain the flight control system alerting, maintenance messages, and electrical electronic system faults that were occurring on these airplanes in the weeks and days before their accidents. These accidents were triggered by production quality defects that presented as intermittent system malfunctions. These types of defects are difficult to identify and troubleshoot. They frequently result in no fault found maintenance determinations. MCAS and the lack of pilot training did not trigger these accidents. However, it was the failure of the sensors due to the production quality defects. Simply put, 
If the intermittent defects did not cause the AOE sensors to fail on these flights, MCAS would not have activated and these two accidents would not have occurred. The MCAS would have remained a hidden threat until its true nature is exposed by some other valid or erroneous causes. Now, Ed, I don't want to discount what you're saying here, but I think there are other, um, you know, folks who would look at that and say, well, the design didn't include, did not include fail-safes. And so ultimately, still, you know, I'm not discounting, again, the manufacturing issues that were included in that report. I don't have further information on that. But, you know, the the overall engineering design of the MCAS system didn't include enough fail-safes to step in when there were those issues with the sensor, right? So. Like ultimately, absolutely. there's absolutely. also engineering issues involved in that. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely correct. 100% agree. This there's absolutely engineering issues involved in that. There was absolutely issues involved in the lack of training of pilots. Um, there was all, all of the above. But in addition to that, which is what we've been saying, what I've been saying for years, is that manufacturing also played a role. And unfortunately. The NTSB did not investigate those issues involving manufacturing. So some of the issues that we're seeing right now in service, we're seeing airplanes that are having all the characteristics, from my professional opinion, all the characteristics of, of classic electrical, electronic type failures. You're having systems that are turning on, on and off. Um, they're not, um, they're repeat failures. A classic example of that, we'll talk about, if I could, Alaska Airlines. I'm not trying to beat up Alaska because that is my airline of choice. But, you know, they've had tons of flight management computer failures. Um, and, and these things have happened, and these have been going on for almost two years now. And that's just one example. They've had anti, anti-icing issues. So I, I, want, I want people to kind of broaden their aperture and, and just re- remember that um, there's a lot of factors at play here that need to be addressed. And this idea of patching up this plane and calling it good um, again, I use the analogy of driving down the highway and your and your car um, part falls off and you pull over to the side of the road and you, you pick up your part and you go to the shop and the mechanic says, wow, you know, let me install that. And the course in installing it, he finds other issues and let me fix it. And then, he, you know, you're on your way and you have to be asking yourself, well, what else could have been wrong here? You know, so this is why we are our foundation is going to be sending out a press release in the next couple of days. And I know this is not popular, but um, we're going to say that we think these airplanes need to be grounded. They need to be incredibly inspected um, before they get uh, flying again. And and I'm not talking about the 737-9. I mean, just this month in January, we've seen at least three or four serious incidents involving the 737-8. We had a a stab uh, stab trim failure on the horizontal stabilizer, the electrical system in in the back of the plane that controls the pitch of the plane. We've had... Uh, engine anti-icing failures that resulted in emergency, uh, excuse me, emergency descent and a, a, a landing unplanned. And we've also had um, uh, compressor engine stalls. And just two months ago, um, we had a United plane that was at 37,000 feet and they had an engine failure in November. And that plane had 40 hours on it. So what does this say about quality control? And what does it say about the FAA's ability to uh, effectively regulate this um, manufacturer? So, And Ed, I want to get back to your broader criticisms about Boeing. Yeah. I'm going to give you plenty of yeah. chance to talk about that. I just want to keep our thread going on what exactly happened on the 737 MAX 9 that, that had the catastrophic blowout of the door plug. I mean, what we're talking about here in the Renton facility is... Um, quality control issues. There was a breakdown somewhere with a chain of custody of the spirit fuselage being delivered. 
the Boeing manufacturing team, uh, workers in the plant there, removing the door, installing it incorrectly, and then it going out the door to Alaska. Um, You know, and Richard, I think this comes back to an issue that folks have talked about in terms of corporate structure. Spirit Aerosystems, which delivered that fuselage, used to be Boeing Wichita. It was spun off in 2005. Um, Now it serves as a contractor, and now there is kind of that separation where the delivery from Spirit is a handoff between companies and potentially somewhere where there's a breakdown in quality control. I mean, why isn't Spirit Aerosystems, again, not the airline, the Aerosystems, part of Boeing anymore? What what was behind that spinoff and what has some of the critics, you know, pointed to has been the result of that? Yeah, you know, that, that that's a great question. And it gets back to what I call the cult of Rona, which I think took over Boeing a couple decades back. Rona, return on net assets, which of course means leverage. Basically, you get better results when you produce good profitability on the basis of minimalized assets. And that means getting assets off your books, like, say, a giant aerostructures facility in Wichita, Kansas, aids and abets that Rona calculation. So that's what they did. And now, to be fair, there were there was maybe the argument back then that this could be a really great center of excellence that could attract its own capital on the stock market and come up with aerostructures for all sorts of customers beyond Boeing. It wasn't a completely brain dead idea, but it did remove a great deal of control. Now, it might have worked just fine, except unfortunately, Boeing treated its supply chain in the last decade and indeed <laughs> now about as well as it created its workforce. That is to say, it regarded them as a disposable commodity that was to be squeezed. There was this yet another Orwellian-sounding initiative called Partnering for Success, aka Partnering for Poverty, which basically required them to squeeze the hell out of their margins and cut things to the bone. And that might have been all right, but then came the Mac shutdown, and Spirit was unique in that over half of its revenue, but most employers have diversified work portfolios, Spirit more than half the revenue came from the 737. So they got crushed, had to cut a lot of good people. Then came the COVID pandemic and the associated slowdown in work uh, that clobbered them again. How Spirit came through this all is, to me, kind of miraculous, but they did. But it's also a recipe for being under-resourced and ill-prepared to meet the most ambitious production ramp that we've seen in a great many years. But ultimately, this is a Boeing jet, and Boeing's treatment of its supply chain is very much its responsibility. That drive to maximize revenue, that's something that comes up again and again when you talk to former engineers, when you read reporting like from Dominic Gates and Bloomberg's Peter Robison. They've told this story about the shift in Boeing's culture from the point at which Boeing purchased McDonnell Douglas in the late 90s. You know, the joke being in Boeing that McDonnell Douglas bought Boeing with Boeing's money because the McDonnell Douglas executives ended up being in charge and they brought this Jack Welchian focus on shareholder value to the company. There was a focus on free cash flow, investing in stock buybacks at the expense of engineering and quality, allegedly. And the reason this is important now, of course, is people are wondering how much of Boeing's problems stem from this deep leadership and cultural uh, dysfunction. Ashley, you know, this is something that you study in in your capacity at uh, Georgia State. What are your thoughts on the 
implications of a cultural focus on shareholder value versus what traditionally people who are long timers at the company said was more engineering and quality? Yeah, Libby, you talked about the the differences, right? There's the balance between focusing on the value versus the safety, and then what we know is that um, the folk that there's always going to be this tight balance or this tricky um, balance between quality and quantity, right? So it's very hard to actually have both to have quality and quantity at, at the same time. And then from my work here at um, Georgia State University, and then my work with uh, cultural psychologists Michelle Gallifan and Stanford, is that our observation is that well, Boeing is operating in a very unique industry um, space. It is uh, operated where there is a lot under uh, a lot of scrutiny. Is very tightly regulated, and then it is what in what we would call a very tight space. It's culturally tight. What it means is that it has very little room for error, and then it it needs a lot of monitoring because it's uh, there is a lot of threats and there's a lot of coordination needs because when there's a failure, the cost failure is potentially catastrophic, and then then from what we have been seeing, it seems like that the organization over time in pursuit of value, that tightness has become losing over time. So that is just something that's going to lead to there's a lot of deviation. And then in this case that, you know, there's a safety concerns. Ed Pearson with the Foundation for Aviation Safety uh, and a former senior manager at Boeing. What do you make of those historic linkages that people say was a turning point for this company? That's a a really great question. And I got to say, I'm only looking at it from my frame of reference. So I started working at the company in 2008 and the McDonnell Douglas merger had occurred many years before that. Um, from my father-in-law and from other people that I know that have worked at the company, um, it really was a dynamic or d- dramatic uh, turn of, of focus. And just as Ashley and Richard are talking about, <clears throat> but I got to tell you that where I differ on this is I've always been trained and, and I apologize, this is my military background, but um, we we uh, we always look at individuals at all levels as leaders, um, and there's a, you know a concept we call situational leadership. And if I put it in an example here, let's say you're a manufacturing employee and you're a new employee that's working in the factory, and you have specific procedures that you're supposed to follow if you remove parts, and and um, you have to document it, and you have to make sure that you communicate it so that people know. Um, if you are trained to do that and you know what's right to do and you allow s- pressure from above to cause you to take a shortcut, then you're making in that moment, you're missing a situational leadership opportunity to do the right thing. And so the Boeing company is not made up of a bunch of people that are lemons that are sitting around just listening to what Jack Welch says. I don't agree with that. Um, I believe it was a dramatic uh, change in the culture at the top, but individual leaders are making choices. People are making their choices, whether they're going to do things properly or not. You have um, people at all levels who have opportunities to say, you know, this is not going to be popular, but I'm going to take a stand here and I'm going to stand and say, we're not going to build this. You know, we're not going to do it. I saw people doing this. I saw it happening, um, but I also saw leadership that um, overrode them. And, and so this is not good. I mean, it's it's clearly a leadership um, breakdown. And it's not just at the board of directors and the C-suite. It, it goes throughout the company. And so everybody needs to own it. You know, I've made ton, tons of mistakes myself, you know, 
Um, you know, removal of quality control inspections. You guys may not know this, but the company has been removing thousands of quality control inspections on their airplanes, and they've been doing it for the last few years. Even after two fatal crashes killed 346 people and $20 billion loss to the company and criminal conduct. So there's a lot more here that people don't know. And, you know, this Alaska thing, we missed that window of opportunity. So I'm thankful that, you know, people like yourself are having this discussion because um, just because the planes are back and flying doesn't mean they're safe. That's Ed Pearson, the executive director of the Foundation for Aviation Safety and a former senior manager at Boeing. You're also hearing from Dr. Ashley Fulmer, assistant professor of managerial sciences at Georgia State University, and Richard Abalafia, the managing director of Aerodynamic Advisory, an aerospace consulting firm. We're talking about Boeing's struggles and the way it can right the ship here and uh, focus on safety uh, in the wake of Dave Calhoun's comments on an earnings call saying that the company is taking accountability for what happened on that Alaska Airlines flight that had the catastrophic blowout of the door plug. We'll be back on KUOW in just a minute here after a short break. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. I'm talking to a panel of experts about Boeing's search for its new direction here and and how it can write the safety and quality control processes at the company after a very scary catastrophic blowout of a door plug on an Alaska Airlines flight last month. Richard Abalafia is Managing Director at Aerodynamic Advisory, an aerospace consulting firm. Ed Pearson is the Executive Director at the Foundation for Aviation Safety and a former senior manager at Boeing. And Dr. Ashley Fulmer is an Assistant Professor of Managerial Sciences at Georgia State University. Richard, Let's talk about what's happening right now. The FAA has put limits on Boeing's MAX line, so that means production cannot expand to meet the demand of customers. What are regulators looking for, and what are the consequences for Boeing at this point of those limits? Yeah, um, first and foremost, we we don't know. (laughs) This has never really happened before. You know, there's certainly been FAA interventions in various stages of aircraft programs, but this is sort of unusual. The first confusion was, what rate are they limiting at? Because it hasn't really been established. It's been kind of all over the map. Uh, and January was uh, was uh, you know half of what December's was, for example. But it now transpires, courtesy of the earning calls the other day, that it's going to be about thirty eight per month. And if they could actually get there and maintain it consistently, that would be fine. <laughs> In other words, there are other limiting factors on seven thirty seven max output other than this FAA cap on uh, on production. They can also do an awful lot to get things back in order and reestablish processes. The point is that this cap on production doesn't address any of the root cause problems here, nothing at all. So my, <laughs> I think it's a very safe prediction that without that kind of cultural change, you're going to see it at 38 per month or whatever the you know production limits and labor breaks on production are going to allow as the program lurches from incident to incident, hopefully non-fatal. Hopefully there'll just be more quality escapes that are uncovered saying, hey, why did this happen? But it's it's hard to be confident unless there is that kind of cultural shift that very badly is needed to restore the company to what it once was. It just a to be clear, Richard, is there any indication that any of this is expanding to the wide body part of the business? I mean, you know, folks up in Everett, the planes that are rolling off of those lines, has there been any extra scrutiny or any indication that there might be quality issues there? 
Well, I'm not so sure how much we can judge by that. I mean, the answer is no, but the answer you know, also that I'm not so sure we can judge by that because triple seven output is very low. It's about two per month, and we're waiting for triple seven X to come online sometime late 2025, 2026. The 787 already went through its production halt because of various concerns back a, a year or two ago. Thankfully, that was resolved. Things are better, but you know, also there output is less than half of what it was at peak. So it's not really the best time to judge. I don't think it means anything, but yes, no, it, it has not rolled over onto the wide body part of the Boeing product line. Ed Pearson, one of the takeaways that a lot of folks pointed to after the MCAS system debacle and the really terrible, tragic crashes of two Boeing planes was that the FAA and regulators in the federal government had ceded their role of oversight largely to Boeing itself. I mean, the Fox was sort of guarding the hen house in a lot of ways. There was this revolving door between the agency and the company, and there wasn't a lot of confidence that the FAA regulators were really looking at these things with the kind of scrutiny that they needed to. Has anything changed there? Has there been any shift in regulatory power or the way that is structured? Well, Libby, my perspective is based on um, what I hear from employees and people that are working at those sites and have been communicating with us for for years now. And what um, we're hearing is that there's really no presence of the FAA in the in the Boeing manufacturing facilities. Um, when I worked there, there was four or five FAA employees. I found this out after I retired and um, was interviewed by the FAA. And, you know, that's not enough. And I, I've said this, that's not enough to monitor the restaurant operations at the site, much less, you know, 30 flow days and people working three shifts a day. So for me, the FA is is, is really completely um, out of touch and they're not involved. I mean, again, just down the road from the 737 plant is the Northwest headquarters for the FAA. There's 2,500 people working at that site your tax dollars. And, you know, yet they only deploy, you know, a handful of people into the busiest factory in the world down the street. I've also heard the FAA and I disagree with the FAA administrator in the past when they've said that we need more resources, we don't have enough budget. You know, they got 45,000 people, there's enough budget, there's enough people that they could move into these sites. Of course, Boeing wouldn't want this, they don't want a bunch of FAA people. But having the FAA in the presence in these buildings, uh, we'll send a very clear message to the employees and management that we're paying it. They're paying attention and this has not happened. And so this is something we've been advocating for. And again, it's not a resource. I, I, I would say that you could absolutely deploy. We're actually recommended to, um, to the Senate that they put a, you know, hundred people in the factory at Renton, Washington and be there on every shift on and every flow day and not to do the work of the employees, but just to be there present and to be able to see what's going on. It's much cheaper and much safer to, to catch these defects in the production environment than wait till they get out. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I'm thinking, Libby. Yeah. Ashley Fulmer with Georgia State, after the 2018-2019 crashes, you wrote about this need to change the corporate culture at Boeing and to engage a neutral third party to diagnose problems um, in the corporate culture. There's a new CEO since then, but we see these problems emerging once again and a huge amount of trust again being eroded from the company that once I think was probably one of the most trusted corporations in America or the most trusted manufacturing products in America, at least. How does Boeing rebuild trust now? 
Well, so this is a great question. And then I think one thing is like, is it actually actively rebuilding our trust? That's the question, right? Um, so what this discussion has in part also demonstrated is that we really don't have a lot of information. So Boeing hasn't really done a good job sharing the information, giving us regular updates, holding public events to tell people, well, what went wrong? And then what needs to be done? What are they doing it now? So that part is really missing. And then so the information, without the information, without the transparency, it's going to be very hard for um, for people to kind of, for the public to trust Boeing again. So what is interesting coming out of this ongoing crisis of Boeing is that right now, because of it has gotten so long, the onus of the public trust, of the passengers' trust, is now actually on the airlines. The airlines is actually needed to, you know, well, they need to first of all deal with the trickle-down effect of damaged trust from Boeing. That's not originate from the airlines, from the Boeing aircraft. And then at the same time that they need to now shoulder this increased uh, responsibility to uphold safety standards, to demonstrate trustworthiness. And then that is just basically that's how right now Boeing still is not doing any of these because now we're looking, the passenger, the public's looking at airlines to to make sure that the aircrafts are safe. Richard, airlines are customers of Boeing and the CEOs of United and Alaska have expressed a lot of anger about what's been happening. Obviously, they... Um, have bought a lot of planes, they have ordered a lot of planes, and they are connected to Boeing for the foreseeable future. But could these problems at Boeing eventually lead to an even larger share of the business of commercial airliners going to Airbus and Boeing becoming more of a bit player instead of a duopoly in the marketplace? Could we be seeing a monopoly eventually with Airbus taking over? Yeah, there's a, a number of things that are very different about the jetliner business, but one is that it's got the highest barriers to entry of any industry in the world, arguably. Uh, it's going to take a very long time before a new competitor emerges if Boeing continues on its path towards be, well, being eclipsed. China's not, they, I know they produce a couple planes a year or something like that. China's not a, on the horizon. It's, yeah. I mean, China's kind of going nowhere because it's government-owned and increasingly making decisions that are designed to satisfy local requirements rather than global jetliner industry opportunities. You know, it's conceivable that maybe in 10 or 15 years, Embraer could enter the large jet space with help from Western uh, contractors, or I should say U.S. and European contractors. But again, a long way off. And in the meantime, um, switching costs are very high, and the weight for an Airbus jetliner in this 737 class is uh, 10 years or longer. So it's just a question of, you know, how long will an airline have to wait uh, if they do decide to back out of their 737 MAX orders. And that could be disastrous because fuel prices are pretty expensive. So if your competitor has a machine that gives them 15% less fuel burn, they're going to beat you. So you kind of have to stick with it. I think, unfortunately, the cynic in me says that Boeing management knows this. They think, well, our investment, you know, our, our time horizon in this business is two, three, four years at most. Nothing's going to happen, really. All we have to do is keep building jets. We're too big to fail is what they're saying? 
we're too big to fail for the, the, the short term. In the medium term, oh, hell no, they are not too big to fail. Airbus is going to get to 70% of the market by the end of the decade, given the course they're on, maybe 75, maybe 80% in the next decade. And eventually, someone will take Boeing's place if they stay on this current path. I know this is really hard, Ed, what I'm about to ask you to do, but we are running out of time. We have about two minutes left. Can you answer the question I just asked to Ashley earlier? What does Boeing need to do at this point to rebuild trust? I mean, I know you have said you don't feel safe flying on a Boeing plane. I don't share your feelings, but I also don't share your background. What do you feel they need to do to make you feel confident in these planes? Well, again, I'm not saying I don't trust Boeing planes. I get on Boeing planes all the time. I just don't get on the 737 MAX. So I want to make sure that's clear. As far as trust goes, it really does start at the top. And for me, trust is recognizing that the board of directors has not been doing their fiduciary responsibilities. They've not been making sure their products are safe. They've allowed the C-suite. They've run amok. Focusing on, I, I'm so tired of hearing about how many planes are going to be delivered. I would much rather hear that you know we're going to deliver all the quality planes we can deliver. Um, so there's a lot that can be done here. This is not a simple solution. It's not just one thing that can be done. The FAA has to do a lot. The Department of Transportation has to get involved. The Boeing company has to value those employees, those employees that are the backbone of the company. It, it's not, there's no one solution, but it really does start with the leadership change that has to occur. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just don't trust um, the company is making the right decisions. And I think we could actually find ourselves something more disastrous than than meeting our monthly stock uh, estimates. Ed Pearson, thank you very much for sharing your perspective here as the executive director of the Foundation for Aviation Safety and a former senior manager at Boeing. Also, great thanks to Richard Abulafia, who's the managing director at Aerodynamic Advisory and at aerospace consulting firm, and Dr. Ashley Fulmer, assistant professor of managerial sciences at Georgia State University. Really great perspective, everyone, and thanks for joining the conversation. Very valuable stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And a final note here, I want to share a bit more of the Boeing CEO's statement on the earnings call yesterday. Dave Calhoun said Boeing has taken immediate safety steps, including more quality inspections, a new team to review Spirit's work before it's delivered to Boeing, opening the factories to airline operators for additional oversight, and bringing in an independent assessment of the company's commercial airlines quality management system. Calhoun said the company would listen to people who work on the factory floor and help to encourage people to raise issues that need to be addressed. He said, quote, we will go slow, we will not rush the system, and we will take our time to do it right. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.